Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Today's guest is Director of Population Health and Clinical Community Linkages with the American Medical Association, Dr. Christopher Holliday. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Elizabeth, for having me. Now, before we get to why you're with me on the show today, I want you to tell me a little bit about yourself. What was your path that brought you to the AMA? Well, I've been a public health professional for over 25 years, mostly in disease prevention and health promotion at the local, state, and national levels, looking primarily at the leading causes of morbidity and mortality or illness and death due to chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, and then developing evidence-based approaches to address these conditions to improve health outcomes. Um, This work, as you might suspect, takes on a population health approach looking not just at individual health outcomes, but larger systems of power and influence, structural forces that create inequities across race, class, and gender. So a lot of my work centers around chronic disease prevention and achieving health equity. By training, I'm a psychologist, so very passionate about mental health, which I believe is inextricable from one's physical health and so much to be addressed as part of complete health. COVID has really shown a spotlight on inequities. Let's talk about the fact that Black Americans represent 13.4% of the American population. Counties with higher Black populations account for almost 60% of deaths. Current data shows a disproportionate burden of illness and death among racial and ethnic minority groups. Why is that? That's a great question, actually. The pandemic has shed light on underlying conditions that contribute to more severe COVID-19 outcomes. There are mainly chronic diseases that for decades have been the leading causes of death, poor health, and most healthcare costs. Marginalized communities continue to experience disproportionately higher rates of chronic diseases because of longstanding systemic racism, perpetuating negative social and economic environments. The very same environments now putting these communities at higher risk for COVID-19 complications, infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. As a result of these underlying social conditions like access to care, people could be sicker by the time they receive care. They could be receiving substandard care or may not even be believed when they complain about symptoms. And because of the unprecedented upheaval our current healthcare system is in, there's patient fear and distrust as people are thinking that if I go to the doctor, I might even contract the virus. So seeking care at a delayed time or after they've been sick for a while really puts them at greater risk for conditions like heart attack and stroke and even death. Would you say that it's not even just distrust, it's the fact that they don't have health insurance and they're afraid to go to clinics or they don't know what kind of care they'll get because African-Americans and Hispanics historically own health insurance at a much lower rate than Caucasians? Yeah. um, In fact, the social determinants of health is, is a term often used to talk about the social conditions that people live in, where they work, where they play where they prey, and it affects a wide range of health risks and outcomes. So access to quality health care is a social determinant of health. Access to insurance is a social determinant of health. Prohibitively high costs of care is the primary reason Americans give for difficulty in accessing care. There's an inability to pay for health care. Health conditions worsen. We have public insurance through Medicaid and Medicare, as well as private and commercial insurance, as we know, uh, many times through our employer. But that said, nearly 30 million people are still uninsured or underinsured, even with the passing of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, or ACA. One of the things I think is important to note is that 
access is one component, but it is not the whole story. Health insurance is just a piece of one of the social determinants that have to be addressed. Navigating the healthcare system by and large, even for those who really understand how it works, is challenging. And people have challenges advocating for themselves, for their families. These are issues that make access really challenging, particularly for minoritized communities. So just wanted to make sure that we understand that just in addition to health insurance, that doesn't guarantee quality care, that it's culturally and linguistically relevant for the services that people need. Let's take the virus out of the fact that pre-existing conditions like heart disease, lung disease, and diabetes exacerbate this virus. Why are African-American communities at a higher risk for heart disease, lung disease, and diabetes in general? Each year in the U.S., more than 650,000 people in our nation die from heart disease, and many of those diseases and deaths are preventable. About half of our nation's adults have hypertension. This is the leading risk factor for heart disease. Less than half are under control, but most could be. In addition, just to to point out another condition, there are 30 million adults with type 2 diabetes and another 84 million with prediabetes, which is the precursor to the disease. And although these conditions are ravaging our healthcare system and our residents of our country, we're putting out fires where we can. So we really need to equip patients, physicians, and communities to prevent them from the start and from escalating. Uh, As you mentioned, COVID-19 has put fuel on the fire that is chronic disease. Available data that we have shows that individuals with underlying chronic conditions, including severe heart disease and diabetes, are not only at increased risk, but increased complications due to COVID-19, as you mentioned. So, again, delaying health care for those who have comorbid or chronic diseases in addition to COVID-19 could be an, an issue um, of fear, of mistrust, and of confused messaging. Unfortunately, using terms like vulnerable or at risk are victimizing and stigmatizing, and people often feel that they are being blamed for being sick, and those belief systems often preclude care-seeking. You say that people feel they're being blamed. Would you feel that people are victim-blaming? 100%. It's evident in the way that our systems are set up and the structures that disadvantage one group and advantage another group, and that thus lead to this kind of social conditions that minority and low-income groups live in are beyond their control. These are higher-order structural inequities that disparage and create barriers to optimal care, optimal living conditions, optimal transportation, and therefore the ensuing disparities in health, so higher rates of chronic illness, higher rates of infectious disease, are then considered that group's fault or that group's issue instead of looking at those larger forces that cause those issues. So victim blaming is a very central and common part of our political discourse. We've talked about the fact that there are racial disparities in healthcare access. Let's talk about the fact that since minorities are dying at a higher rate of COVID, does that disparity extend to COVID testing? Absolutely. First, we know that there's not sufficient testing for the population And current testing processes or practices really surround having certain symptoms or suspicions of exposure. Much of who gets tested is determined by who has access to care 
to be tested. Public health and, and many healthcare institutions are changing this by providing free testing in areas where needed. But as we all know, it is paltry compared to what is actually required for safety and for containing the spread of the virus. Many urban living conditions are especially dangerous for the transmission of COVID. As we go forward and we brace ourselves for another wave, how can we prevent a resurgence in those communities? Here in Chicago, in the Chicagoland area, I want to note that our mayor, Lori Lightfoot, has put together a newly established racial equity rapid response team. The city of Chicago created this rapid response team in partnership with Westside United. It's an initiative whose goal is to cut the life expectancy gap between Chicago's West Side and the Loop by 50% by 2030. In response to the data showing that Black and Latino Chicagoans die disproportionately at higher rates from COVID-19 complications, this task force was really established to accelerate our work not to just fight the virus, but also address underlying reasons why it's taking so many black and brown lives and has been working to provide communities with resources, tools, and information needed to contain the virus. And of course, that hopefully will get ahead of any resurgence in these communities. As a healthcare professional that works on heart disease and diabetes and disparities all year round, let's flash forward and look at the world when there is a vaccine for COVID. Is there a plan to address the issues you've been addressing all along, long after we have a vaccine for COVID? That is our hope. That is our prayer. Uh, We are talking about the new normal post-COVID. However, tragic events like Katrina and what we're experiencing now are so starkly surfacing existing structural inequities. The idea was that there would be an outcry for change. So I'm, I'm optimistic, cautiously, I have to be, but I often uh, understand that without proper structural change, policies, systems change, environmental changes that change these trajectories, once these types of upheavals or pandemics or weather-related tragedies or other things happen, we can regress and go back to the way it was before. I think in this particular situation, there is hope because it is a not just something that's happening in a part of our country or a part of our region, but it's happening across the globe, and it's exposing these inequities. And so with a vaccine and long after a vaccine, the hope is that these structures will have been dismantled and we can all have health equity, truly. Let's talk about the fact that racial and ethnic minority groups are overrepresented in jails, prisons, and detention centers. To your knowledge, are there protocols in place to protect them from the easy spread of this virus? This is not my area of expertise, but I have read and and heard anecdotes uh, around just the the sheer challenge, almost near impossible ability to social distance in jails, prisons, and detention centers. Obviously, with those being in such close quarters, it is a, a almost a petri dish for a virus spread and, and and additional contagion. So there are efforts being made but they will probably have challenges just because of the proximity that not only the inmates are in, but also those who watch and take care of them every day. 
Another place that we're seeing outbreaks, we have one down here at a pork plant. A lot of minorities work in plants and service industry jobs, and they're still forced to work in non-social distancing places. Is that another reason for the higher COVID numbers, and how can we help those populations? That is absolutely a factor in higher COVID numbers. Many of the essential workers are people of color that are working in transportation, so they're bus drivers, cab drivers, Uber drivers, some sort of delivery. They are they are in food service or other service industries, as you know, grocery stores, restaurants. All of these services tend to be those who are either lower income or minority populations and absolutely are a factor in higher COVID numbers in these groups. And what we have to understand is how do those industries better support and equip their workers for safety? The plants and the meatpacking industries are all grappling with how to have their workers be in these plants, which are often close quarters, but be protected and assured of not contracting the virus. And I think as, as we can all see from the news and from reports that that is an ongoing challenge. So much more to learn and to do in that realm. Sometimes access to healthcare is due to a language barrier. Is that a factor in some populations not seeking out medical attention? Oh, absolutely. There are real issues of health literacy in our nation. People do not have either culturally or linguistically appropriate resources that help them to navigate this very complex healthcare environment. It's also important to note that we have seen a bit of an anti-immigrant rhetoric and sentiment, and this is not just recent, but it's historical as well, but this recent narrative of the diseased immigrant has surfaced, and there's some backlash and some xenophobia as a result. So Efforts that are more popular in other parts of the world for extending health care into communities that's both linguistically and culturally appropriate and help mitigate these issues are using care extenders like community health workers or in the Spanish language version, promotores, to be those connectors to care and to help translate some of the very complex language and differences within the healthcare environment. So we're really looking on helping those allies and advocates that are connected to the healthcare system to be that go-between. Especially now, education is the key. For older adults, people with underlying conditions, we all need to adhere to healthcare plans, whether it's use inhalers or take our blood pressure medication. Should that education come from public health officials? Should it come from the news media, your primary care physician? Who should we listen to most intently? Well, as a member of the American Medical Association, it's obvious where my answer is going, and that is that as we receive healthcare plans for whatever our existing conditions are, and those are developed by our primary care physicians or our specialists, and they should always, always be consulted if there are questions or needs for additional education or services. Always call your primary care physician. Public health and other institutions are there to support based on their industry's means of doing that. But for a primary care issue, you want to talk to your physician or specialist. 
This is your area of expertise. My next question. The current pandemic has created a lot of anxiety that can cause an increase in heart issues because we're also more sedentary, which also leads to diabetes. How mentally can we cope with the stress of this current environment? I think we have to first acknowledge that this is all unprecedented and actually recognize that it is particularly a stressful time, not just in our country, but in our homes and our families and within ourselves. And one thing we've seen as a result of the pandemic is a spike in the need for mental and behavioral health services. There are real feelings of stress and anxiety and depression that are manifesting for a myriad of reasons, the major one being uncertainty. And as a psychologist, this is a particularly concerning part or manifestation of the virus and of the pandemic. And mental health issues will be a long-standing legacy of this pandemic. So those with pre-existing conditions like diabetes, like hypertension, have an increased risk of adverse effects due to stress and anxiety. The good news is that there are resources out there to help, and we encourage everyone to consult their primary care physician and, and share these real and valid feelings. And he or she and refer them to telehealth mental health services from a licensed professional to address these, again, very valid emotions. All right, Dr. Holliday, I have to ask, I spend a lot of time angry with the national response, more impressed with Illinois' response, even more impressed with Chicago's response, but how do you always manage to keep politics out of your job? Well, the one thing I've come to realize is that health is political. Um, It's absolutely something that touches on individual rights, on civil rights, and on human rights. And not only is health political, but it's often a political football where the personal is political, especially at at, at this moment for people of color. So who gets what resources or who gets that ball and who does not is a very real political choice or political determinant. Here's what I found is that personal stories are the most powerful in transforming minds, hearts, and belief systems. There are tens of thousands of people who've lost their lives and hundreds of thousands have become sick and battling to recover from COVID-19 and regain some sense of normalcy. My heart goes out to them and I, I applaud the frontline workers who are operating in this space and the service industries and all of the people that we've talked about thus far. And politics aside, we're all in this together. But Politics is a driving force in how this job is either supported or undermined. Before I let you go, one question on a personal level. What do you personally miss the most about life from three or four months ago? (laughs) What I personally miss the most is being among people. Obviously, sheltering in place is a very challenging thing to do over an extended period of time. But I think as Creatures who thrive in congregation or together, that's part of the human element is our togetherness. And I miss that most, whether it's in a restaurant, walking along Lakeshore Drive or on the beach or in neighborhoods and just touching and hugging people like we used to, I I miss the most. Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Dr. Christopher Holliday, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's been a pleasure.